This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of brachial plexus injuries from the trauma section on orthobullets.com. Traumatic brachial plexus injuries can involve any degree of injury at any level of the plexus. More severe injuries such as rupture of plexal segments or root avulsions are associated with higher energy trauma. Brachial plexus injuries include traumatic injury, which is what we'll discuss in this topic, obstetric brachial plexus injury such as Erb's palsy or Klumpke's palsy, burners and stingers, and Parsonage-Turner syndrome, which are all topics that we will discuss in more detail in other podcast episodes. As far as the epidemiology of brachial plexus injuries with respect to supraclavicular injuries, complete involvement of all the roots is most common, and these make up 75% to 80% of traumatic brachial plexus injuries. Other supraclavicular injuries can include C5 and C6 upper trunk injuries, otherwise known as Erb's palsy. These make up 20% to 25% of traumatic brachial plexus injuries. And finally, C8, T1, or lower trunk injuries, otherwise known as Klumpke's palsy, make up 0.6 to 3% of traumatic brachial plexus injuries. As far as the mechanism for brachial plexus injuries, high-speed vehicular accidents, which are mostly motorcycle accidents, make up 83% of traumatic brachial plexus injuries. In the setting of a caudally forced shoulder, this predominantly affects the upper brachial plexus, and with high enough energy, all of the roots can be affected. In the setting of a forced arm abduction, as in grabbing onto something while falling, this predominantly affects the lower roots. Again, a caudally forced shoulder predominantly affects the upper brachial plexus, and a forced arm abduction predominantly affects the lower roots. As far as the prognosis of brachial plexus injuries, recovery of a reconstructed plexus can take up to three years. Nerve regeneration occurs at the speed of one millimeter per day. Infraclavicular plexus injuries have better prognosis than supraclavicular injuries. And keep in mind that upper plexus injuries have an improved prognosis, in that they have preservation of hand function. Root avulsion or preganglionic injuries have the worst prognosis, as these are not repairable. Other surgeries such as arthrodesis and tendon transfers may be needed in the setting of a brachial plexus injury. As far as the anatomy, the brachial plexus has both motor and sensory innervation. As far as the classification, brachial plexus injuries are divided into preganglionic versus postganglionic injuries. Preganglionic injuries are avulsions proximal to the dorsal root ganglion, which involves the central nervous system, which does not regenerate, and in this setting there is little potential recovery of motor function, therefore it has a poor prognosis. Lesions suggesting a preganglionic injury include Horner's syndrome, in which there is disruption of the sympathetic chain, Wing scapula medially, which is loss of the serratus anterior muscle, which is innervated by the long thoracic nerve, the rhomboids, which is innervated by the dorsal scapular nerve, and this leads to medial winging, where the inferior border of the scapula goes medial. Preganglionic injury also presents with motor deficits, for example, a flail arm. However, keep in mind that sensory is intact. Preganglionic injuries also have an absence of a tenel sign or tenderness to percussion in the neck. Lesions suggesting a preganglionic injury have a normal histamine test that evaluates the C8 to T1 sympathetic ganglion. A normal histamine test means that there is an intact triple response that is redness, wheel, and flare. Other lesions suggesting a preganglionic injury include an elevated hemidiaphragm, and the diaphragm, of course, is innervated by the phrenic nerve, rhomboid paralysis, and remember the rhomboids are innervated by the dorsal scapular nerve, supraspinatus-slash-infraspinatus involvement, and remember these muscles are innervated by the suprascapular nerve, and finally latissimus dorsi involvement, 
which is innervated by the thoracodorsal nerve. As far as evaluation of preganglionic injuries, EMG may show loss of innervation to the cervical paraspinals. Postganglionic injuries involve the peripheral nervous system and are capable of regeneration, therefore there is a better prognosis for postganglionic injuries. With respect to the presentation of postganglionic injuries, these present with motor deficits, for example a flail arm, as well as sensory deficits. As far as the evaluation of postganglionic injuries, the EMG shows a maintained innervation to the cervical paraspinals. In addition, there is an abnormal histamine test in postganglionic injuries, in that there is only redness and wheel, but no flare. As far as the classification based on location, we'll talk about upper lesions, for example, Herb's palsy, which involves C5 and C6, lower lesions, for example, Klumpke's palsy, which involves C8 and T1, and a total palsy, which involves C5 to T1. With respect to upper lesions or Herb's palsy affecting C5 and C6, this is the most common obstetric brachial plexopathy. This results from excessive displacement of the head to the opposite side and depression of the shoulder on the same side producing traction on the plexus. This occurs during a difficult delivery in infants or fall onto the shoulder in adults. Keep in mind that Herb's palsy has the best prognosis. With respect to physical exam in these patients, clinically the arm will be adducted, internally rotated at the shoulder, pronated and extended at the elbow, otherwise known as the waiter's tip position. In a C5 deficiency, you will see axillary nerve deficiency, which translates into weakness in the deltoid and teres minor. You will also see a suprascapular nerve deficiency, which manifests as weakness in the supraspinatus and infraspinatus, and you will also see musculocutaneous nerve deficiency, which manifests as weakness to the biceps. In a C6 deficiency, you will see radial nerve deficiency, which manifests as weakness in the brachioradialis as well as the supinator. Moving on to lower lesions or Klumpke's palsy, which involves C8 and T1, these are usually avulsion injuries caused by excessive abduction, for example, a person falling from a height clutching onto an object to save him or herself. Other causes may include cervical rib or lung metastases in lower, deep cervical lymph nodes. It's frequently associated with a preganglion injury and Horner syndrome. Keep in mind that lower lesions like Klumpke's palsy have a poor prognosis. As far as the physical exam in lower lesions, there's typically a deficit of all of the small muscles of the hand that are innervated by the ulnar and median nerves. Clinically, these patients present as a claw hand. For example, the wrist is held in extreme extension because of the unopposed wrist extensors, hyperextension of the MCP due to loss of the hand intrinsics, and flexion of the IP joint also due to loss of the hand intrinsics. Finally, a total palsy that affects C5 to T1 is a form of brachial plexopathy that has the worst prognosis. Total palsy leads to a flaccid arm and involves both motor and sensory. As far as the presentation of brachial plexus injuries, the history is usually a high-energy injury. Physical exam may reveal a Horner syndrome, and features of this include drooping of the left eyelid, pupillary constriction, and anhydrosis. Usually, this shows up three days after the injury and represents disruption of the sympathetic chain via C8 and or T1 root avulsions. Physical exam in these patients may also reveal severe pain in the anesthetized limb, and this correlates with the root avulsion. Important muscles to test include the serratus anterior, which again is innervated by the long thoracic nerve, and the rhomboids, which are innervated by the dorsal scapular nerve. If they are functioning, then it is more likely that the C5 injury is postganglionic. Finally, as far as pulses, 
make sure to check the radial, ulnar, and brachial pulses, as arterial injuries are common with complete brachial plexus injuries. As far as imaging, radiographs to obtain include a chest radiograph, and recommended views include a PA and a lateral. Fractures to the first or second ribs suggest damage to the overlying brachial plexus, and evidence of old rib fractures can be important in case the intercostal nerve is needed for nerve transfer. Keep in mind that inspiration and expiration can demonstrate a paralyzed diaphragm, which indicates an upper nerve root injury. As far as the cervical spine series, recommended views include an AP and a lateral. Transverse process fractures likely indicate a root avulsion. As far as the scapular and shoulder series, recommended views include at least an AP and axillary lateral or equivalent. A scapulothoracic dissociation is associated with root avulsion and major vascular injury. As far as the clavicle, recommended views include orthogonal views, and remember that a fracture may indicate a brachial plexus injury. CT myelography is the gold standard for defining the level of the nerve root injury. Avulsion of the cervical roots causes the dural sheath to heal with the meningocele. The scan should be done three to four weeks after the injury, as this allows the blood clot in the injured area to dissipate and the meningocele to form. An MRI is indicated when you suspect that the injury is distal to the nerve roots, as you can visualize much of the brachial plexus. Remember that CT slash myelograms demonstrates only nerve root injury. Findings on MRI include traumatic neuromas and edema, mass lesions in non-traumatic neuropathy of the brachial plexus and its branches. Findings consistent with brachial plexus injury include a pseudo-meningocele, where the T2 images highlight water content present in a pseudo-meningocele. Other findings consistent with this injury include an empty nerve root sleeve, where T1 images highlight fat content in the nerve roots as well as empty sleeves. And finally, you may also see that the cord is shifted away from the midline, and the T1 images highlight the fat of the cord. Other studies to obtain include electromyography, nerve conduction velocity, nerve action potentials, as well as sensory and motor evoked potentials. With respect to electromyography or EMG, this tests the muscles at rest and during activity. Fibrillation potentials correspond to denervation changes, and you may see these as early as 10 to 14 days following injury in the proximal muscles and as late as 3 to 6 weeks in the distal muscles. EMG can help distinguish preganglionic from postganglionic injuries. To do this, you will examine proximally innervated muscles that are innervated by root-level motor branches, for example the rhomboids, serratus anterior, and cervical paraspinals. A nerve conduction velocity is performed along with an EMG, and these measure sensory nerve action potentials, or SNAPs. A nerve conduction velocity also distinguishes preganglionic from postganglionic. SNAPs, or sensory nerve action potentials, are preserved in lesions proximal to the dorsal root ganglia. Remember that the cell body is found in the dorsal root ganglia. If SNAPs are normal and the patient is insensate in the ulnar nerve distribution, then this is considered a preganglionic injury to C8 and T1. If the SNAP is normal and the patient is insensate in the median nerve distribution, this is a preganglionic injury to C5 and C6. Nerve action potentials are often intraoperative, and it tests a nerve across a lesion. If a nerve action potential is positive across a lesion, that means that there are preserved axons or significant regeneration. Nerve action potentials can detect re-innervation months before EMG. A nerve action potential being negative corresponds to a neuropraxic lesion, a nerve action potential being positive corresponds to an axonotmetic lesion.
Finally, with respect to sensory and motor evoke potentials, these are more sensitive than EMG and nerve conduction velocities at identifying continuity of roots with the spinal cord. That is a positive finding. A negative finding cannot differentiate the location of discontinuity, that is, a root evulsion, versus axonotmesis. A sensory and motor evoke potential is performed four to six weeks after the injury to allow for Wallerian degeneration to occur. Stimulation is done at Herb's point, and the recording is done over the cortex with scalp electrodes. These are transcranial. As far as treatment for brachial plexus injuries, these can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management involves observation alone, waiting for recovery. And as far as indications, most brachial plexus injuries are managed with close observation. Other indications include gunshot wounds, which in the absence of major vascular damage can be observed for three months. Signs of neurologic recovery include an advancing tenel sign, which is the best clinical sign of effective nerve regeneration. Operative options for brachial plexus injuries include immediate surgical exploration, that is less than a week, early surgical intervention, that is between three to six weeks, and delayed surgical intervention, that is between three to six months. With respect to immediate surgical exploration, that is less than one week, the indications for this include sharp penetrating trauma, excluding gunshot wounds, iatrogenic injuries, open injuries, progressive neurologic deficits, and an expanding hematoma or vascular injury. Techniques for an immediate surgical exploration include nerve repair, nerve grafting, and neurotization. Early surgical intervention that is between three to six weeks is indicated for near-total plexus involvement and in the setting of a high mechanism of injury. A delayed surgical intervention that is between three to six months is indicated for partial upper plexus involvement and low energy mechanisms, a plateau in neurologic recovery, and remember that it's best not to delay surgery beyond six months. As far as the technique, delayed surgical intervention usually involves tendon-slash-muscle transfers to restore function. Now let's talk about these surgical techniques in a bit more detail. A direct nerve repair is rarely possible due to traction and usually is only possible for acute and sharp penetration injuries. A nerve graft is commonly used due to traction injuries that are postganglionic. Remember, it's preferable to graft lesions of the upper and middle trunk, as this allows better chance of reinnervation of the proximal muscles before irreversible changes at the motor end plate. Donor sites include the sural nerve, the medial brachial nerve, and the medial antibrachial cutaneous nerve. Vascularized nerve grafts include the ulnar nerve when there is a proven C8 and T1 avulsion, which is mobilized on the superior ulnar collateral artery. With respect to neurotization or nerve transfer, this involves transferring a working but less important motor nerve to a non-functioning, more important denervated muscle. You will use extraplexal sources of axons, for example, the spinal accessory nerve or cranial nerve 11, intercostal nerves, the contralateral C7 nerve, or the hypoglossal nerve, otherwise known as cranial nerve 12. Intraplexal nerves include the phrenic nerve, a portion of the median or ulnar nerves, the pectoral nerve, or an Oberlin transfer, which is an ulnar nerve used for an upper trunk injury for biceps function. Finally, with respect to muscle or tendon transfer, this is indicated for isolated C8 to T1 injuries in adults. Reinnervation is unlikely in these patients due to the distance between the injury site and the hand intrinsic muscles. As far as priorities of repair slash reconstruction, this includes elbow flexion, which is innervated by the musculocutaneous nerve, shoulder stability, which involves the suprascapular nerve, brachial thoracic pinch, which involves the pectoral nerve, C6 to C7 sensory, which involves the lateral cord, wrist extensions, which involves the lateral and posterior cords, 
wrist flexion slash finger extension, and finally, intrinsic function. As far as one of the techniques for muscle or tendon transfer, remember that the gracilis is the most common free muscle transfer. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, A healthy 27-year-old male is brought into the emergency department after a fall from a height. He has a suspected left C8 to T1 nerve injury. Which of the following findings would most suggest a root avulsion injury rather than a brachial plexus injury at this level? And the choices are 1. Reduced radial artery pulse. 2. Double break in the ipsilateral superior shoulder suspensory complex. 3. Elevated hemidiaphragm. 4. Musculocutaneous nerve deficit. And 5. Drooping of the left eyelid. The correct answer to this question is 5. Drooping of the left eyelid. So drooping of the left eyelid is a presenting feature of Horner syndrome. Horner syndrome represents a disruption of the sympathetic chain by a C8 and or a T1 root avulsion after trauma. To quickly review, brachial plexus injuries are often classified as preganglionic versus postganglionic injuries. Preganglionic injuries are typically avulsion injuries proximal to the dorsal root ganglion. Clinical features suggestive of lower root avulsion injury include a person falling from a height, clutching on an object to save him or herself, Horner syndrome, which is drooping of the eyelid, otherwise known as ptosis, pupillary constriction or meiosis, and anhydrosis. Other clinical features suggestive of a lower root avulsion injury include absence of a tenel sign or tenderness to percussion in the neck, and a normal histamine test, which tests the C8 to T1 sympathetic ganglion and a normal histamine test is an intact triple response of redness, wheel, and flare. Caparino et al. reviewed 102 patients to assess the best modality, for example, physical examination, MRI, and nerve conduction studies for diagnosing and localizing brachial plexus injuries. They found the best diagnostic performance with physical examination, with a sensitivity of 97.8% and a specificity of 30.8%, and nerve conduction studies with a sensitivity of 98.9% and a specificity of 23.1%. MRI had inferior performance for all measurements. They conclude that nerve conduction studies exhibited superior performance to MRI and should be considered a more reliable supporting tool after detailed physical examination. Moving on to the next question, what would be the most appropriate surgical indication for transferring fascicles of the ulnar nerve to the motor nerve of the biceps and fascicles of the median nerve to the motor nerve of the brachialis? And the choices are 1. C8 to T1 nerve root avulsion 3 months ago, 2. C5 to C6 nerve root avulsion 2 months ago, 3. Upper brachial plexus palsy 22 months ago, 4. Medial and posterior cord injury from a gunshot wound 2 months ago, and 5. C6 Asia A spinal cord injury. The correct answer to this question is 2, C5 to C6 nerve root avulsion two months ago. So transfer of fascicles from 1, the ulnar nerve to the nerve to the biceps, and 2, the median nerve to the motor nerve of the brachialis would be appropriate in the treatment of an acute upper brachial plexus palsy, defined as less than 3 to 6 months old. An upper trunk injury involving C5 and C6 often results from the avulsion of both the C5 and C6 nerve roots. Injuries of this nature usually result from a downward force on the shoulder with lateral bending of the cervical spine in the opposite direction. This results in what's commonly called an herb Duchenne palsy. Patients often present with a flail shoulder and loss of elbow flexion. 
Other common treatments for C5 and C6 root avulsions include neurotization of the musculocutaneous nerve by the spinal accessory or intercostal nerve and neurotization of the suprascapular nerve by the spinal accessory nerve. Laverneau et al. looked at short-term results of one, an ulnar nerve fascicle transfer to the nerve to the biceps, and two, fascicle of the median nerve to the motor branch to the brachialis in 15 patients with acute C5-C6 nerve root avulsion injuries. Grade 4 elbow flexion was restored in each of the 10 patients. There was no secondary deficit in grip strength or sensation. They concluded that this double nerve transfer technique will likely reduce the need for secondary procedures to augment elbow flexion. Taboul et al. reviewed 32 patients with an upper nerve root brachial plexus injury that underwent ulnar nerve fascicle transfer to the nerve of the biceps to restore elbow flexion. After the nerve transfer, 24 patients achieved a grade 3 elbow flexion strength or better. They note that this procedure will spare the C5 nerve root and other nerves for grafting or transfer elsewhere. Moving on to the next question. A 30-year-old male sustains a brachial plexus injury as the result of a motor vehicle collision. Palsy of which of the following muscles would not be expected with this injury if the injury was postganglionic in nature? And the choices are 1. Rhomboid major, 2. Extensor carpi radialis longus, 3. Biceps brachii, 4. Deltoid, and 5. Brachioradialis. The correct answer to this question is 1. Rhomboid major. A brachial plexus injury would involve all of the upper extremity muscles as well as most of the periscapular muscles. Complete plexus palsies are rare and are often associated with scapulothoracic dissociation or other high-energy injuries. To quickly review, preganglionic injuries often involve the cervical paraspinal musculature as well as a complete plexus injury. EMG evidence of intact signals in the serratus anterior, which again is innervated by the long thoracic nerve, and the rhomboids, which are innervated by the dorsal scapular nerve, are suggestive of a postganglionic lesion slash injury. Tubbs et al. reported on the surgical anatomy of the dorsal scapular nerve in a cadaver study. They found that the nerve came off of the C5 nerve root in 95% and ran 2.5 centimeters medial to the spinal accessory nerve as it traveled on the anterior border of the trapezius muscle and was intertwined with the dorsal scapular artery in all specimens. Balakrishnan et al. reported on the comparison of clinical exam and EMG in predicting site of lesions in brachial plexus injuries. The combination of an EMG and exam localized the nerve injury in 80%, while the paraspinal EMG was the most sensitive solitary examination method. Moving on to the next question. A 26-year-old male sustains a traction injury to his left arm after a motorcycle crash with resulting weakness in the left upper extremity. An EMG was done and showed normal cervical paraspinal muscle activity. Which of the following statements is true regarding this injury? And the choices are 1. The injury has likely resulted in the avulsion of several nerve roots. 2. Physical exam would likely reveal drooping of his left eyelid and anhydrosis. 3. Intact paraspinal musculature on an EMG is suggestive of a postganglionic lesion. 4. Immediate surgical intervention with neurotization would eliminate weakness and restore function. And 5. The patient would show a normal histamine test. The correct answer to this question is 3. Intact paraspinal musculature on EMG is suggestive of a postganglionic lesion. So normal cervical paraspinal muscle activity on EMG is characteristic of a postganglionic injury. Determining whether a brachial plexus injury is pre- or postganglionic has important treatment and prognostic implications. Findings that suggest a preganglionic lesion include Horner syndrome, that is ptosis, meiosis, and anhydrosis, 
a medially winged scapula, loss of paraspinal musculature activity on EMG, and a normal histamine test. These injuries tend to have a worse prognosis than postganglionic lesions, which show an abnormal histamine test and intact cervical paraspinal activity on EMG. Moran et al. reviewed brachial plexus injuries, and they recommended a baseline EMG for non-operative injuries at 3-4 to four weeks' time after Wallerian degeneration has occurred. Shin et al. also reviewed brachial plexus injuries, and they state while an MRI can visualize much of the brachial plexus and may be able to demonstrate neuromas, a CT myelogram still remains the primary mode of radiographic evaluation for nerve root avulsion in the acute setting. Moving on to the next question. A 10-day-old girl has decreased active motion of the left upper extremity. The mother reports a difficult vaginal delivery with presumed shoulder dystocia. Examination shows full passive range of motion of the shoulder, elbow, and wrist, but only active flexion of the fingers and wrist. Factors predictive of a good outcome include which of the following. And the choices are 1. Breach delivery. 2. Absence of an ipsilateral clavicle fracture. 3. Horner sign and an APGAR score of 10 at 1 minute. 4. Return of active biceps before 3 months and preservation of full passive shoulder range of motion. And 5. Absent Moro and Babinski reflexes. The correct answer to this question is 4. Return of active biceps before 3 months and preservation of full passive shoulder range of motion. So return of active biceps before 3 months and preservation of full passive shoulder range of motion are predictors of a good outcome. Breach delivery is usually associated with a preganglionic injury. Preganglionic injury can result in a Horner sign, which includes ptosis, meiosis, and anhydrosis. Preganglionic injuries are unlikely to recover. The moral reflex is elicited by dropping a baby's head a short distance and observing active elbow extension and fanning of the fingers, followed by elbow flexion and crying. Absence of the moral reflex suggests a poor prognosis. Moving on to the next question. A woman with a neck and chest tumor has weakness in the biceps and paresthesias in the thumb. Brachioradialis and infraspinatus function are normal. The lesion is affecting which of the following structures? And the choices are 1, C6, 2, upper trunk, 3, middle trunk, 4, posterior cord, and 5, lateral cord. The correct answer to this question is 5, lateral cord. The lateral cord terminates as the musculocutaneous nerve and also contributes sensory fibers to the median nerve. Involvement of the C6 root or upper trunk could potentially cause weakness of the infraspinatus and the brachioradialis. The middle trunk and the posterior cord do not contribute motor fibers to the thumb or sensory fibers to the thumb. Moving on to the next question. A patient sustains a transection of the posterior cord of the brachial plexus from a knife injury. This injury would affect all of the following muscles except and the choices are 1. Subscapularis, 2. Latissimus dorsi, 3. Supraspinatus, 4. Teres minor, and 5. Brachioradialis. The correct answer to this question is 3. Supraspinatus. So the posterior cord of the brachial plexus gives rise to 1. The upper subscapular nerve, 2. The lower subscapular nerve, 3. The thoracodorsal nerve, 4. The axillary nerves, and 5. The radial nerve. The upper subscapular nerve innervates the subscapularis. The lower subscapular nerve innervates teres major and also the subscapularis. The thoracodorsal nerve innervates the latissimus dorsi. The axillary nerves innervates the deltoid and teres minor. The radial nerve innervates the triceps, brachioradialis, wrist extensors, and finger extensors. The supraspinatus is innervated by the suprascapular nerve off the upper trunk and therefore would not be affected by an injury to the posterior cord. 
Moving on to the next question. An 18-year-old football player is injured after making a tackle with his left shoulder. He has decreased sensation over the lateral aspect of the left shoulder and radial aspect of the forearm. Motor examination reveals weakness to shoulder abduction and external rotation as well as elbow flexion. He has decreased reflexes of the biceps tendon on the left side but full non-tender range of motion of the cervical spine. What anatomic site has been injured? And the choices are 1. Fourth cervical nerve root, 2. Upper trunk of the brachial plexus, 3. Middle trunk of the brachial plexus, 4. Lateral cord of the brachial plexus, and 5. Axillary nerve. The correct answer to this question is 2. Upper trunk of the brachial plexus. So the athlete in the question stem has symptoms referable to the axillary, musculocutaneous, and suprascapular nerves resulting from an injury to the upper trunk of the brachial plexus. This portion of the plexus is formed by contributions of the 4th through 6th cervical nerve roots. This area is often contused or stretched following a tackling maneuver that results in either depression of the shoulder from contact at herb's point or traction of the upper plexus from forced stretching of the neck to the contralateral side. And the final question is a 21-year-old collegiate football player has been diagnosed with a left superior trunk brachial plexus injury following a tackle. Which of the following would most likely be normal on physical exam? And the choices are 1. Sensation over the lateral aspect of the shoulder, 2. Biceps reflex, 3. Shoulder abduction, 4. Sensation of the radial aspect of the forearm, and 5. Second and fifth finger abduction. The correct answer to this question is 5. Second and fifth finger abduction. So examination of finger abduction would be normal in a patient with an isolated superior trunk brachial plexus injury. Finger abduction is performed by the ulnar nerve, which is supplied by the inferior trunk of the brachial plexus. Superior trunk brachial plexus injuries are thought to occur secondary to traction when an athlete sustains a lateral flexion injury of the neck. Transient injuries are often referred to as stingers or a burner. Symptoms of these injuries are referable to the motor and sensory functions of the axillary, musculocutaneous, and suprascapular nerves. Hirschman reviewed the etiology of brachial plexus injuries. They showed that superior trunk brachial plexus injuries are usually transient, with 95% of people regaining full neurological recovery with conservative management. Schneck showed that injuries to the superior trunk will mainly affect muscles supplied by C5 and C6, such as the deltoid, biceps brachii, brachialis, and brachioradialis muscles. Decreased sensation will occur over the lateral shoulder, lateral aspect of the upper limb, as well as the radial half of the volar forearm with these injuries. That's all for this review about brachial plexus injuries. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.